All right, so we want to get started. <laughs> <laughs> okay. One, two, three. Welcome to the Syriana episode of the Redboard Podcast. I'm Gabo Marcia. I'm joined as always by Davis Allen hey. and John Flores. Hey, everybody. So as I mentioned to you guys before we start recording, I think in honor of the nuance of our takes of these films that we're going to be watching, I think it'd be good to start off by just doing thumbs up or thumbs down. What did you think? Was it good or was it trash? So... John, I'm going to put you on the spot and say, Syriana, thumbs up or thumbs down? Big thumbs up from John. We talked a bit about this film previously. And as I said to you all, I think George Clooney has been in a number of really profound anti-capitalist films. This being one of them, Syriana, Michael Clayton, and Up in the Air, I think are all in their own ways criticisms of capitalism. But this film in particular really impresses me because it's such a powerful indictment of the oil industry and of the CIA. And I love how the film does not do what a lot of liberal films do when they criticize institutions in our society. I like how the film does not reduce what is going on in the oil industry, the hypocrisy and violence of the oil industry or the CIA to any one bad individual, to any one immoral individual. It doesn't even suggest that it's a barrel of bad apples that are at the root of the problem. Instead, it is more of a industry-wide systemic condemnation of the oil industry and of the CIA. And it shows us that the CIA is effectively the security force of the oil industry. And it shows us that the CIA goes about securing the interests of our oil companies in clandestine, but also very violent and hypocritical ways. I'm very impressed by this film. Davis, thumbs up, thumbs down. Yeah, definitely a thumbs up for me. I had never seen this and I was kind of blown away. To me, the, the biggest thing that stood out is that I feel like it highlights the fact that global capitalism is still, even in the neoliberal era, it's still about the interplay between states capitalist firms and workers. And usually in a movie that tries to cover something like this on a global scale, you might have one or two of those elements represented. But I think having all three as important elements of the film's plot is extremely unusual and kind of amazing, really. I mean, the way these stories were woven together, like I realized I, I was reading some reviews and it sounds like one of the criticisms at the time was that it was pretty hard to follow. Right. And I get that. I, I, you know, there's a lot going on, obviously, but I think the way that they were able to weave these stories together, showing all three of those elements is really incredible, actually. Yeah. Um, I, for me, it's also a thumbs up, but I think what I most liked about it is also maybe my criticism of it, because I think what it does so well is it shows how, you know, this global system that runs on fossil fuels is so all-encompassing. It stretches from the Persian Gulf to DC suburbia. And in order to convey that, they have to do all these disparate plot lines. And I think the aspect of that that I'm not a fan of is that it made me feel like 
how can we ever beat this thing? It's it's so vast and so powerful. What can you do but drive a boat into the side of a of an oil tanker? Which I don't think is a positive message or a takeaway that you want a radical film to be feeling. So yeah, I think my my broad sense of the film is like this is awesome, definitely thumbs up. But I wish it could also give us slightly more hope rather than just feeling like, man, this is an invincible behemoth. So it definitely puts you in a weird position when you're hearing this radical Islamist leader say, it is not possible to bridge the gap between human nature and modern life through free trade. And the pain of modern life cannot be cured by deregulation, privatization, economic reform, or lower taxes. The the fact that this movie was made in 2005 and had somebody who is ostensibly the villain, that person is vilified in every other thing from this era. And to have him speaking truth, you know, that that part of what he's saying is absolutely true. I I mean, that, that, that blew me away, honestly. Is there more you guys want to say on kind of general takeaways? Because I think it could be good to just take us through like the film, maybe chronologically, or or maybe looking at one plot line at a time, like the Matt Damon, George Clooney. Do you guys have a preference on how we, on how we tackle it? No, I mean, there's a lot. Yeah. I read the criticisms as well, that there's just, that this is an array of convoluted plots and therefore it gets confusing, but maybe this is the academic or intellectual side of me but I actually appreciated that the film was a challenge. Unlike most films that I see, which I feel are designed to feed you the information and to provide you with a very clear start to finish narrative, I thought the writer director, I think his name is Stephen Gagan. Yeah. I liked the way he brought these interconnected stories together. I liked that I had to work to understand it. I appreciated that, that I had to pay attention that this isn't the type of film that I could step away and you know, go get a beer and then come back. And it would all sort of, it just makes sense wherever it is. And that's frankly how I feel about many films about our interventions in the third world. I mean, if I were to think of a Jerry Bruckheimer film or, uh, I mean, who made Black Hawk Down? Is that Brooke? That's oh, not God. Bruckheimer. That's, I don't he know, should be in uh, jail Bay. he is. <laughs> <laughs> so if I think of like a Michael Bay film about the third world or Jerry Bruckheimer about the third world, you know, you could step away and go get popcorn and come back. And the good guys are going to be fighting against the bad guys. And that's the story that we're being taught. And that's the story that's being reproduced. And here you have to pay attention to understand what is happening. And there's so much subtlety in what's happening. I think it might be useful just to tackle any of the, of the threads, any of the sub stories and see what we think of them. Well, I mean, I think the main place to begin is George Clooney's character, CIA agent Robert Barnes. The movie starts with him killing two arms dealers, but seeing a second missile go away. And that drives his character for the rest of the film. What I thought was interesting, and I think this goes back to my original point of it being slightly cynical, is that he suffers the same fate as the terrorists. And he's the guy who in a lot of ways is trying to be the hero correct? Like he realizes what's about to happen. He's acting what he believes is the morally correct way to act as, you know, we would all hope that we would in that situation. And he doesn't save the day. You know, he doesn't go home to the wife and kids. He suffers the same fate as that of the Pakistani uh, immigrant. The line at the ends, you know, or towards the ends when he's like 
sneaking into the meeting, you know, quietly trying to ask, like, why am I being investigated? And the CIA guy basically says, you're a soldier. You probably never even knew what you were really fighting for. You know, I mean, that's a killer line. Yeah. Because it's true, right? I mean, he it's representative of that. (laughs) Obviously, you know, spoiler alert, we're going to talk about the end of the movie here. He gets hit by a drone missile. I mean, it's incredible. Like the, the symmetry is, is shocking. I mean, it's, it's horrifying. And yet it's, it's, yeah, I found it to be incredibly powerful. The, the sort of bookends seeing that car exploding while he does the classic like action movie, you know, walking away without looking back moment. Um, and then in the end, he's in the same position basically. That's a plumber who plays Dean Whiting, mm-hmm. the head partner in that law firm, who is this Machiavellian character pulling strings in the background. And the conversations he has with everybody in this film are really deep in what they imply. That exchange that you pointed out that he had with Clooney is very powerful. It seems we're all witnessing that Clooney is an asset, for lack of a better word, right? He's a tool and he is disposable. They disavow him in the film. Yeah, right. He is disposable and he is a company man and apparently did very well for them in Tehran and therefore has a track record of succeeding on behalf of the United States and the CIA. And yet they treat him as a disposable asset. This is a criticism, obviously, of the CIA by this film. And it's it's powerful to see. It did make me interested to read the book that it's based on. I, I don't know if I'll ever get around to it, but it, it's a little bit funny that he is this former CIA agent is kind of represented by the Clooney character. And uh, in, in the movie, they decide to kill him off. He, he didn't die, obviously, in, in real life, but I have the feeling that might be a sign of the fact that he came to realize that he, he was disposable. I also saw that George Clooney intentionally ate a ton of pasta to put on 30 pounds to play a CIA agent. So I was just wondering if maybe that was another subtle hint to what he thinks as a person of the CIA that, okay, I'm going to play a CIA agent. I have to put on 30 pounds. I'm not going to give them my typical glamorous persona. Even something like that was very interesting to think about in this film, which is the director and the writer is suggesting the CIA agents of this world who are going around the world assassinating people, they aren't James Bond. This isn't about being James Bond. As you're saying, you can be a pudgy, overweight man, but when Clooney arrives to meet his contacts for the assassination of the older Saudi prince, if you recall that scene, not long before that, Clooney is seeking to return it to his wife, who is also a CIA agent of some kind, maybe in Egypt. And so this is undercurrent here that he's trying to return to her or get a position where he can be near her while they raise their son. So this is a family man. This seems to be a gentle, kind man. But when he meets with his contacts, I think it's in Lebanon. How does he describe the assassination of the older Saudi prince? He says, I want you to take him. I want you to bag him. I want you to drug him. And I want you to crash a car going like 60 miles an hour into the side of him. And he says it the way you and I might order some food at a restaurant. He's ordering this assassination in very simple and clear terms. And he's going to then go and have lunch somewhere and observe it from a distance and make sure it unfolds. And that's a very profound message to us in terms of what the film is trying to tell us about who these people are that carry out these kinds of acts, that it isn't James Bond. I had to do the same thing. Davis said, double check that this actually was released in the United States in 2005, not only because of the political climate we were in that time, but if you take into account that that was before Obama came into office, 
it's, I mean, it's almost prophetic, not just doing great commentary in depicting our government's use of drone strikes. And just as the message of the film is international spies aren't these sexy martial arts experts doing amazing stunts all over the globe. I think that was coupled with this powerful image of even a more pudgy looking guy assassinating the entire family. It's very clear that not only is George Clooney there and the older prince, but his wife and daughter and whoever else is an SUV. Yeah, so it's just reinforcing that statement of pretty benign looking people who talk and act just like you or I would are really committing some very heinous acts for awful reasons. Well, I, I did think it was kind of funny. I mean, this movie was released in between the board supremacy and the board ultimatum. The Bourne movies don't make the U.S. government come out looking amazing, right? It's about the nightmare of intelligence agencies in the U.S. as well. But it's the complete opposite, right? Like Damon's character in those movies is like the ultimate super soldier. And this movie, we see that, yeah, that's that's not really the case. In fact, it's not even Clooney's character that's doing the killing, right? It's, it's not like he is going in and, yeah, he's he's looks a little past his prime or something, but he's still sitting on a roof sniping somebody or something. No, he's he's relying upon the contacts that he has in that place to do the dirty work for him, which I thought was a really interesting parallel, really, because like it, I felt like a major theme of this movie was the way that American capitalists or the, the whole system of global capitalism that America has basically formulated since the end of World War II, that system relies not just upon American multinational corporations in the American state, but it relies upon local elites to actually set the stage for that capitalist accumulation, right? Like in this movie, what we see is all of these elites from different countries that have the capacity to actually discipline labor forces in the way that that they need to based on that particular context. And, um, yeah, then, then the CIA situation is basically the same. Clooney's character is just going in and, and finding that person who can do the job for him in that particular country. I think this might be a good place to connect Clooney's activities in the Mideast with the theme of the Saudi prince, his father and the younger prince, and also Matt Damon's character. I really was impressed by the way the film depicted the CIA's actions in the Mideast, because you seem to have multiple connected narratives unfolding that ultimately result in the assassination of the older Saudi prince. But those narratives are in contradiction. So what I mean by that is, at one point, the heads of the CIA or Clooney's direct supervisors. The people that Clooney reports to within the CIA describe the older prince as having money in dark places, and they suggest he has a connection to one of the reactionary Islamist uh, teachers who is at that school that ends up recruiting the two younger characters to become suicide bombers. They connect the older prince to that, or they claim that there's a connection. But then later on, when you see what the older prince is seeking to do, he's seeking to do everything that is very capitalistic and reformist. Is He's not a communist. He's not a fundamentalist of any kind. He is somebody who is saying, I want us to have the things that you have in the West, schools, hospitals, a parliament. I want us to have infrastructure and roads. I want us to have those things. But if I try to do that, it's your country that will start criticizing what I am doing. If I sell to the highest bidder, if I sell to China. Yeah godless communist. I'm now, he doesn't say rogue state, which is what they would probably say today. He says, I'm now a godless communist if I sell to the Chinese. So that is engaging in a capitalist transaction. 
but to the wrong client makes you a godless communist. And so he says to him, I can't engage, carry out the reforms I want to carry out. So we have these two narratives, a narrative of what he's saying he's doing. We have the narrative of what the CIA is saying he's doing. But then in the backdrop of that, you also have Clooney's private security contact played by William Hurt, who Clooney goes to meet. At one point, Clooney says to him, what is the problem with the older prince? And he says, if the older prince reaches the throne, are we going to be able to have our military bases in Saudi Arabia? So do you have, on the one hand, the classic narrative. His money is in dark places. He is tied to terrorists. You have him engaging in reform activities, but then you also have these other actors telling you, here are the U.S. real interests that are involved in why he can't become the king. And it's that combination that makes the film very complex. And it's probably one of the reasons some people criticize the film, because they feel that there's contradictions there. But to me, that's life. Life is full of contradictions. And so they're showing us the complexity of yeah, it. I think the contradictions are part of the reason that movie is so incredible. When we look historically at the way that this system of global capitalism has come about, it wasn't some sort of straight line where there was complete consensus about exactly what to do at all times, right? Even within the U.S. state, you have these like major currents that are directly contradictory, even within the American state, right? You have people who see America as exclusively promoting global capitalism and openness, but there's also the contradictory point that the whole reason America is in that position is to maximize its own interests, right? And so those are the two currents that we see right here. Does America, the state that sets up this entire system, is it primarily interested in openness, even if that means that the Chinese consortium can pay a lower price and, and get the oil? Or is the primary interest in protecting American profits? In which case, the events of the movie follow. Like Clearly, that is the, the side that wins out. But there are people within the state who have contradictory opinions about exactly that issue. Those couple of scenes that John was pointing out, where he says he's godless communist and the other speaking to the other leaders of the government, they point exactly to that hypocrisy you're talking about. It reminded me of the president of Syria, Bashar al-Assad, make this argument like, I want to be on the American side. I'm secular. I'm educated in, in the West. I want the same kind of democratic institutions that <laughs> that your government has. And, and I'm being you know invaded by these Islamist groups. Let's work something out. We should be on the same side. But as we've seen in other points in history, often it's it's just it's just not enough. You can't be culturally aligned with the United States. You have to be economically aligned with them 100% of the time. Every military base, every oil rig, you have to toe that line. You can't break with them. See, I thought Is that a little Ho Chi Minh reference? Is it? Oh no, no. <laughs> I ah, man, I've been me meaning to read some of his stuff and I just, and I and I haven't. Uh, I've been told he, he has some really good good writings. I mean, mostly just the fact that he he was kind of obsessed with the U.S. and, and asking the U.S. for support and the stuff oh, followed only happened after he uh, was was basically denied. Yeah, you see it happening in, in I mean Cuba wasn't explicitly socialist at first. Fidel had more. I think Raúl was the, the the outspoken Marxist, and Raúl and Fidel at first had these more nationalistic tendencies. And and I think you know even going further than those lines given by the prince there's just some really great camera work that 
I think illuminates this hypocrisy. What one that stuck out to me was we're introduced the committee to liberate Iran and the camera pans to the representatives of this committee. And it's just three old white guys <laughs> and movies never portrays the committee to, lib- to liberate Iran as more than just that, which is a lot of what these pro-democracy groups that we see in, in these countries are. It's, and unfortunately, because there are concerns for a democracy in a lot of these countries, it's why they can't get any traction because a lot of the people there see them for that front for U.S. interests that, that they so often are. They're there to liberate the people from themselves. Yeah, right. Speaking about the older prince played by Alexander Siddig, you don't learn if his money is in dangerous places. You don't learn if he has a connection to the mosque that is recruiting the younger men who become suicide bombers. Instead, you're left with this complex figure who is trying to be a reformer and who is being blocked by the United States and by members of his own family who aren't interested in those kinds of changes. And this ties into Matt Damon's character. There's that scene, the older prince calls him back to Saudi Arabia to offer him something for the tragedy that happened. You have Matt Damon who says to him, we all think you're a fool, that you're just squandering this natural resource. And so the older prince says, well, show me, you know, tell me something. And then he tells him, well, here, you can just pipe your oil through Iran. See, here's something, here's an intelligent thing you can do. And I remember when I first saw this film years ago, I thought to myself, why doesn't the older prince say back to him, oh, I'd love to do that, but now I'd be an ally of Iran and your country would bomb me. He doesn't say that, but later on when he pulls Matt Damon aside and Matt Damon says, you can do this, you can do X, you can do Y, you can do Z, that's where the prince unloads on him and says, no, I can't do that for all this of reasons. I will be called a godless communist. I will be denounced. And it's actually happening in real time. The U.S. government is moving against him. Special interests like that law firm, people like Dean Whiting are moving against him via his younger brother. The CIA is moving to assassinate him. It's happening in real time as he explains to this financially brilliant American who doesn't seem to understand anything about the U.S.'s actual role in the third world. Yeah, I'm glad we're talking about his character because I think what he did nail was portraying his characters, just how naive he is. Yeah, yeah, he's a true believer because (laughs) ultimately he's this financial expert, you know, who works in the oil business, but in no way is he this right-wing libertarian who has no empathy or, you know, concern for greater ideals of democracy and and human rights and decency. He very much thinks like that this capitalist worldview and the betterment of countries in the third world like can coincide and he's part of it's part of why he ends up falling around this principle he's like yeah you know i'm gonna be part of the reform or even revolution of a country into a bright shining modern democracy and that idealism that faith in the system ends him up inches from being hit by a cia drone strike I think this movie is a subtle in a lot of ways, but now what I just said maybe made me think that maybe it's a bit on the nose. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I I mean I I thought he he was his character was so interesting because to me he is the embodiment of sort of this belief in like liberal democracy. These people who believe in a pure political spectrum between liberal democracy and the authoritarian communists, right? And and he believes that that openness and economic liberalism will just inevitably bring democracy and modernization and all of these things to this country, right? He believes 
very genuinely that that is that's the solution and it's it seems kind of silly as you're watching him having a sense of what's coming and yet there are a lot of people who i i think they're, they're coming from the right place with those beliefs their beliefs are just wrong in assuming that com- capitalism and democracy are inherently aligned or even are compatible it's interesting hearing Gabe's interpretation of the character because I, I feel maybe it's just me, but I think I know so many liberals in the United States that are like that Matt Damon character. Actually, it could be that I'm in academia. I think academia includes a lot of people that are like that character. That is, they're very, very smart, well-read people who do not define us as an empire that goes around the world overthrowing other countries. It's not part of their education, I should say. And it could be that that's not part of our education as a whole. I actually just wrote about this recently. We don't teach much about foreign policy in grade school and high school. We don't really learn about foreign policy, or at least not much, nothing substantive. And it seems to me, because if you begin examining our foreign policy, it raises questions about the alliances that we have with countries. Let's just take this movie as an example. At present, we claim that we are engaging in overthrowing a number of Latin American countries and countries outside of Latin America because they're not democracies. But Saudi Arabia, our strongest ally, is a monarchy. So which is it? Are we saying that we will overthrow you if we find that you engage in any kind of undemocratic, and by that they mean unparliamentarian practice? That means you need to be overthrown because you aren't a democracy? Or... Can we align ourselves with non-democracies that are explicitly monarchies if, of course, they engage us economically as our allies and they subordinate their interests to those of the U.S. state and those of U.S. corporations? I could not believe the way liberals celebrate Elizabeth Warren. If you read anything and hear anything that Elizabeth Warren has to say about Venezuela, she's as hawkish about Venezuela as any of the hawks. I think we're onto something here that this film is about foreign policy issues. And I don't think Americans receive a sophisticated and substantive foreign policy education. So you can be for Medicare for all. You can be for a Green New Deal. You can be for all these things that we associate with progressivism and sort of the progressive side of liberalism. But if you say, no, we shouldn't be overthrowing the government of Venezuela, and actually we should stop economically sanctioning the more than 30 countries right now that the U.S. is unilaterally sanctioning, which is actually against many of the United Nations declarations, we should not be going around the world unilaterally devastating other governments. And yet we do this, and you can be a Green New Dealer, et cetera, and be okay with overthrowing governments in the third world. Those two go hand in hand in the American liberal mind. I think you're you're spot on about the lack of foreign policy education and how this movie is really about that. But what I was also thinking about is just how the film captures in a number of times culturally the way, and I, I don't know, maybe this isn't specific to the United States. I just know that I feel like I've seen this dynamic play out many times in my short time, the real professional world. I'm doing air quotation marks. The ways in which you can just casually condemn people to really awful things and just go about your day and be a nice person. You have that scene with, I think it's like the CIA director and then like the two people under him who are the managers of George Clooney's character. And for all we know, that CIA director, who knows what he's like in his personal life, but you know he just has these people work from come up to him and he, and he says, okay, situation, yeah, let's just ostensibly kill that guy. It's said through many different words, but that's essentially what he's condemning George Clooney to. 
ending his professional career. And when you're dealing with the CIA, you don't know how far that goes. I mean, we even see that the guy that makes the call to, to send the drone strike, you know, we see him with his his children getting out of his. Right. And I, and I think that's right that like we have a special proclivity for people in other countries to, I, I don't know the right word, be, be glib about this kind of violence. But I, I feel like I've seen this in even here, you know, the way, I mean, I, I remember hearing people talk about firing people in the same kind of way. There's, there's that same, <laughs> I don't know, tone. If there's a managerial class, then I think there's something cultural that, that I'm trying that I'm trying to point out here that marks it <laughs> because I think of an important feature of it is this ability to be saying, yeah, we have to fire 150 workers to get our quarterly profits to where they need to be this fall. So where do you want to go for lunch? You know, once you're able to do that, Sure. Okay. The Americans need oil. Yep. Send that drone strike. I think this kind of dismissiveness of violence, obviously to different extents, whether it be in the Middle East or here, a drone strike is much different than a guy getting laid off, but both cause real pain. And and I've had to deal with exactly what John's saying of really nice people by all accounts, being okay with that, or even being the ones carrying it out. And I, 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 don't want to make that sound like I know people who are carrying out drone strikes. I meant like the other less, <laughs> much less bad version of that. Do you, do you guys get what I'm saying though? How it's kind of like a much smaller version of that, that you see more colloquially in like day-to-day life here. Who are your real friends, Gabe? Who are you hanging yeah, out yeah. with? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I'm. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's a, an interesting sort of, you know, you mentioned the managerial class. I think that's another way to talk about this film as basically a, a discussion of, the managerial class globally and the way that essentially this movie is about the dynamic between the greedy capitalists and the workers, right? We see both of those elements and yet neither of those sides are actually the ones actively doing most of the action that is in this movie, right? All of the people carrying out these things on behalf of the American state, they are representatives of that managerial class. I mean, even Damon, who, uh, you know, is in the position to make tons of money or Bennett, um, who also, um, you know, can, can make a huge amount of money through this. Those, those people aren't the capitalists themselves. They're, they're people acting on behalf of the capitalists. Should we connect this to that other theme in the film? The theme about the Man. workers in it? Oh, go ahead, John. I, I was just ready to jump on that. <laughs> Go ahead. Gabe. Well, I, we just haven't even talked about that. And I felt like that was one of the most powerful moments in the film where they show up at the factory and it's there's no work today. And they come back to the, whatever camp has been built for them in the Persian Gulf. And it's your immigration papers aren't valid. You know, it's almost a wonder that more people don't get wrapped up into the kinds of groups that we see the two young men, unfortunately, get wrapped, wrapped into because man, I felt hopeless watching those scenes. And I think that was that was the point. It is a very bleak situation that thousands of people are, are living in, not just those in these oil monarchies in the Middle East, but, but all over. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's so dehumanizing and it's, it's awful to see the, the situations that they're in. But it was hard for me not to think about, you know, how many people in the United States Right. are living in similar situations. 
how many people around the world, obviously, but like even in even in this country where where we supposedly look after workers better than better than anywhere or something, if you go and look at the way that agricultural workers live in the United States, the way that people that work at meat processing plants, you know, our, our factory farms, they live in basically the same situations that the film depicts. And I think it makes a lot of sense when you see the experience of these young people. Basically, I, I, I think that there's a, an element here where we see these religious figures, yes, speaking to religion, but more than that, speaking to the dehumanization that comes from this I system. see you as a real person, kind of. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's somebody saying this system doesn't see, doesn't treat you as a human being, but there's an alternative. And I think that that, I think it's very natural that people are drawn to that alternative. It's a very tragic story there. When I first saw the film years ago, I was very moved by the story of, and I think the character's name is Wazim. 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 And he's played by an actor named Mazar Munir. And he has a friend who largely goes unnamed. But I remember seeing the friend's face at the back of the boat who is manning the motor and the way Wazim looks back at him at the point where Wazim is ready to charge into the oil freighter and die. The look on his friend's face who is saying, I don't want to go through with this. This is the end of our lives. There's fear there and there's anxiety and there's he doesn't want to do it. And he ultimately turns that craft towards the freighter. And there they go. I remember when I watched this film thinking this segment could be called How to Create a Suicide Bomber. And I thought this film depicted that in such a sophisticated way where they aren't simple-minded people, fools, or people who are just seduced. It's not that simple. You have, as you both described, people who are very exploited, who have very little prospects, who are living very harsh lives. I mean, Wazim's seeking to just bring his mother into a safer place. He keeps talking about his mom wanting to help her in some way, and yet he can't find work. And if we are talking about a fictionalized Saudi Arabia, we're talking about a country that has something like 10 million immigrants, 70% of whom are undocumented. And these people live very harsh lives. They don't have access to good jobs, high wages, good health care. They don't have access to these things like undocumented people anywhere else in the world who live harsh lives. And the question is, when you place people in a position of being exploited with very little life prospects, where does that lead them? So where, where does that lead them? What choices do they have? And it seems they get recruited. And when we think of the United States, we can think of the way people who are living exploited poor lives in the United States get seduced by reactionary ideologies that we find on our television screens and on our radios. They're being spoken to. That is, someone is out there validating them, validating their existence, talking to them, pleading with them, and they are living harsh lives. I mean, watching this, I wish I knew more about, I, I wish I, I knew more than nothing, which is what I know currently about Pakistan, and that maybe the fictionalized scenario was Latin American or some other context that I, I'm more familiar with. Because basically what's so striking is you have to ask yourself, how bad are things in the country that they're coming from that they're looking around at this camp? I, I guess I don't know what else to call it and saying, oh, whatever we do, we have to bring our, our mother or my wife for the dad here. Like my, my first reaction being in that working camp wouldn't be, oh, let's get the rest of the family here. For a lot of people, that is the case. And it just speaks to the extent to which, you know, the West has plundered and decimated civil society 
it's not just economic exploitation, it's breakdown of institutions in a lot of these countries where the, the parallels are slums in urban United States that are seen as more favorable than the situation than the situation in Honduras or El Salvador that people are coming from here. And I just don't know enough about Pakistan to understand the exact situation there, but I imagine it's 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 that same dynamic taking place. Any final thoughts? Any other comments that you all may have? I'm curious to know how this came to be because it it seems one of like the great not heists, but I, I don't know what you call this when you sneak past the filters and the sensors of Hollywood and get a film as radical as this out there to the mass market. And I think that's quite an accomplishment. And I think there has to be some deceptive aspects to it because you look at just the cover, but it's exactly that shot that Davis was talking about, the classic James Bond walking away from the explosion. So even myself going into this thinking, you know, John recommended this, but is this really, am I, am I watching Sicario, but in the Middle East? And obviously it wasn't that. I think that's why the critical reception wasn't that good or why it's not known as a famous film, because maybe that's the trade-off. Okay, you market something in a way that will get it produced, but then you're going to get a lot of people walking away not satisfied because they were looking for that James Bond movie. You know, my take on that is that you do have to pay attention to really extrapolate the incredible radical message of the film. And I assume that was one of the reasons why this film could still be made and still receive such a wide mainstream reception, given how radical its implications are. But I would also tie this to a couple points, which is one, I've emphasized the radical dimensions of the film, but I think there is a liberal dimension. And that is there's this character who I don't even know what his name is because he's only named, I think, by his first name, but he's the character that meets Bennett Holiday on a couple of occasions. He either seems to be the... He's the attorney, ge- attorney general, I think. He could. So I don't know if he's an attorney general. I don't know if he's a senator in charge of some kind of oversight committee. I don't know what he is, but let's say he's the attorney general. He is interested in prosecuting these oil executives for corruption. And so the film does suggest that there are these senators and congressmen or attorney generals who have the power and or inclination to prosecute oil executives for their corruptions in the third world. So the film shows you that that's happening. You have that liberal message that there are these forces at work, these senators out there who are in charge of these committees who are actually interested in prosecuting oil executives. But my sense is that oil executives don't get prosecuted for engaging in corruption in the third world. They just aren't. Another reason I think the film was made is that it is a somewhat cynical message. This is not a message of people organizing, fighting back, and succeeding. And I think that radical narrative is a narrative Hollywood does not want to produce, a narrative that suggests that we can unite together, especially across international borders, that we can fight these giant corporations and the state. But a message that says, as you articulated earlier, Gabe, that the forces of capital and the forces of the state are so powerful that you can't really beat them. That message is acceptable to Hollywood, acceptable to the state and to the corporations. It's ultimately a cynical message because in the end, everybody who's trying to do the right thing loses. And ultimately, it does seem like corruption and hypocrisy and violence defines the status quo. And there's no way out of it. I thought the Tim Blake Nelson character was so interesting. We are introduced to him 
when he's talking on TV about basically arguing that money in American politics isn't as much of a crisis as people claim. Then he's the one, but, you know, there's the lawyer that gets uh, indicted, but he is the other character that ends up taking the fall. And basically, he's the one who is most explicit about it, right? His crime, what separates him from all the others, isn't doing it. It is trying to justify it openly. He, he literally quotes Milton Friedman at one point. You know, he, he is making the points much more explicitly than everybody else and is actually trying to justify his actions instead of just covering them up. And he's the one that ends up taking the fall. And, and, and I, I, I thought that character was really interesting to play a very minor role, but, but he ends up being a really key figure in, I think, the, the kind of cynical message of the film. Yeah, this question of prosecuting corruption, I thought was really interesting in the film. And my takeaway of it wasn't that it made the movie less radical or more liberal. I think the, the movie's liberalism comes from its cynicism, but it's still quite radical, not only for its message, but just the fact that it was made in 2005, four years after 9-11, and says suicide bomber isn't an evil monster, but a working class victim of global capitalism. That was quite discovered for me watching this film. And on the question of, of this corruption, I felt like why that aspect of this film worked for me was because there really is a need to maintain appearances. And I think you're right, John, that you don't see all the executives being prosecuted for the actions in the third world. But what I saw in the film wasn't so much that as much as we need to show something, the appearance of due diligence. So this merger can go through and we can really exploit the third world, you know? <laughs> and so if there's some sacrificial lamb, so be it. And I, I don't know, you see that with fines that are imposed. I mean, I, what, what are the institutions that we have? The SEC, yeah, the Attorney General. We, we all know that they're not really going after you know, the true white collar criminals, but they are doing something. They, they, they do have to remain busy and they do have to do something to justify it. And, but as the film shows, it's not with the end of eliminating it. It's really with the end of justifying these practices, uh, providing cover for them. And I think that is re really realistic and a powerful message. And you even see, and I think the movie is even commenting on this in other points, maybe how the U.S. is failing at this in this new century when he's talking, when the print is talking with the other Saudi leaders saying they need all those bases now because they're losing the ideological. Do you guys remember the quote? I, I'm, I don't remember the exact quote, but. Yeah, but it, it's something like that where he's saying we can take on the U.S. right now. They're not as strong as they seem. It's kind of this idea of it being a paper tiger. They're very strong. They have a very strong military, but they're every day losing more and more the ideological battle. And I, that really struck a chord with me, just talking on what's going on right now with, with everything. And I you know, don't want to date the show, but I think more and more, everyone around the world is not looking at the US as this beacon on the hill. And not just in the countries that we've bombed, but all you, all you need to do is own a TV set and see people at Trump rallies, you know, that <laughs> or storming the Capitol, the Prentice TV show hosts, not winning the more votes, but still being appointed president. It's... I think the movie's making interesting commentary about this need for a masquerade to win this larger ideological battle and how the U.S. might be every day failing at it more and more. Guys, I think that's a podcast. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Since I've raised the bar so high, 
I've been, and I, you know, it's been some cool music because you haven't heard, you know, crowd rock in a long time. When was the last time you heard Japanese jazz? Did you know there was Japanese jazz? You probably thought it was Japanese karaoke. No, there is Japanese jazz, and one of the hottest Japanese jazz groups is called Pistol Jazz. Which is kind of what attracted me to, you know. I come across a name like that, I said, come on, I gotta listen to these guys' music. Pistol Jazz. 